Beyond the Mic with Sean Dillon. We're joined on the Starline by rock and roll cultural historian, commentator, podcaster, and author. Her latest project is Being Britney, Pieces of a Modern Icon. We welcome the wonderful and our friend, Dr. Jennifer Otter Bickerdyke. Thank you so, so much. I mean, you're like a living legend. So what an absolute honor to be here with you. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Let's go beyond the mic. You've been called a Britneyologist. Now she's changed from Mickey Mouse Britney to Slave for You Britney to Shave Her Head Britney. Now, oh, I don't know what the heck to call this Britney now. How has Britney changed in your view, which is different than everyone else's? Sean, that's a good question. And I think to me, the sad part that's changed about Britney is that she's really changed from a musical cultural icon in a lot of people's eyes to more a paparazzi, more look and point kind of figure, if that makes any sense. I feel like what we've really gotten away from is the insane artist that is, when I say insane, I mean, it's incredible. It's mind blowing how many different things she's impacted and changed and how much product she's sold that part of it, we've gotten away from that. And we just kind of are like, what is she going to post on Instagram next? What thing is she going to do? That's going to be nutty. Who's going to crush her wedding next. That seems to be what people focus on more than the mother, the entrepreneur, the singer, the artist, the woman, the human, like people don't seem to really think about or talk about that very much. Who is Brittany? If you can boil her down just to three words, survivor, survivor, survivor. Really? I really think that because I think she's, and the reason I say the same word three times, as silly as this, I'm not, it isn't like Bloody Mary. I'm not trying to evoke some weird spirit or anything like that. But I think if you really kind of rewind, I just was having this conversation with a, a film producer today. We were talking about childhood And he was trying to convince me that I should write a book about childhood stars and how if you have a crap childhood or if your childhood is somehow not very healthy, that it just creates the blueprint, if you would, for a really challenging adult life. And you're you're like, why are you saying this with Brittany? And I'm not saying Brittany had a bad childhood, but from a very young age, the age of 10, she was trying to be a celebrity. So from a very, very young age, if you kind of think about that, I mean, how many, Sean, I'm asking you this, do you have more memories and and kind of like the things that influence who you are from age zero to 18 or from 18 to 40? Well, that all depends, Jennifer, because I moved around so much growing up. I never had long-term friends. I never understood what friendship really meant. Until I got to college. I mean, I never formed any strong attachments because I was never in one place for more than a couple of years. But how that how this goes to Brittany, that's a perfect example though, because because patterns and behaviors and ways to protect yourself you learned early on are still things that we're talking about on how you perceive and experience the world now. So if you if you, if you go back to Brittany and why I say survivor, I don't know if she's been able to really figure out who she is or what she's all about outside of just being able to kind of get through each and every day. Cause at the age of 10, she started out being a performer and like the idea of, is she an artist? Like 
yes, she is, but she's also this kind of marketed, media-sized consumer good in a lot of ways. So I don't know if she's ever really been able to figure out who she is, what she's about, what the actual, if you strip away the fame, it's kind of like an onion or like a peanut M&M. Like, what is the nut inside the peanut M&M of Britney Spears? You get away the candy shell, you take away the chocolate, what's that little nut inside of her? And I, the Survivor is the only thing that I think I have 100%. I know that is true about her, and I know that that's real. So how is your childhood compared to Brittany? Is this a therapy session? Do I have to send you a check after this? <laughs> it's not therapy, but to write with such passion like writers do, for readers to feel it on the page, why were you influenced by her story that you had to tell it? Was it something in your own childhood that you were related to? I would say the what I really related to with Brittany was the anger of being misunderstood. I was coming off, when I wrote the Brittany book, I was coming off of writing another book about a woman named Krista Pafkin from the Velvet Underground. And that story was very much one of misogyny. She was very, very beautiful like Brittany and that's what people really noticed her and talked about or not about her art, artistry or any anything else she had going on. And that was very much not my childhood. I was Molly Ringwald in Pretty in Pink, like on the bad, li- living in the not that cool area of the town, very kind of rough and tumble. My dad was the hoarder next door. My mom, unfortunately, has bipolar disease, which she refuses to be treated. So it was quite... I actually don't talk to my parents. My parents disown me when I decided to work in the music business. So there's been a lot of trauma in my own childhood. So the whole idea, and and, and I would say continues to be, because I think there's so much pressure to be, even as an adult, to be like, oh, family's first. I, I'm able to forget about it a lot of times, like that I don't talk to my family because I have a great husband. I have a lot of friends. But I think there is, when you don't have that perennial bond and it kind of leaves you without a a foundation in a lot of ways. So that part I really understood of Brittany, like your parents not being there for you, your family not being there for you, you're kind of alone and an orphan in the world. I really did identify with that. So that may be what kind of comes across in terms of what I'm talking about her family, but there was a lot of anger that I had when I was writing the book because I'd just come off of writing that book about Nico. And I couldn't, that combined kind of my own personal experiences, but also there was so much talk in the, the media about, oh, how could we have done this to Brittany? But then I don't see anyone really trying to change things. Like they're still talking about, oh, her, what she's wearing or like she's getting her tits out on Instagram or whatever it is. They're not talking about the fact that she's been in this really abusive conservatorship or that she's this amazing businesswoman. They're talking about these other things that are not really that important or celebratory about her. So that misogyny and the things that they were saying they'll never do again, they're still doing. That makes me still really cross. Now, her story has been in the news and covered by everyone. Mm -hmm. Why is Brittany a story that still isn't completely told yet? I mean, are we not going to hear the complete story until sadly something happens to her again? That's a really good question because I think the story of Brittany is still unfolding. It's unfolding because I think Brittany is still figuring out what the story of Brittany is in a lot of ways. 
I don't think Britney's ever had the opportunity to figure out who she is as Britney Spears in lowercase letters. And that I think is a real shame that she's, I mean, you, you and I have had opportunities to go explore who we are and away from friends and family and expectation. I don't think she's ever had that as an adult. So that is, that's a big part of it. But the thing that was really important to me writing the book, is I think she's really, especially in the last couple of years, been seen as like a victim and someone that is in, has been in this, you know, in this bad situation. Well, yes, some of that's true, but it's a lot more complicated than that. She's also done these amazing things. She's completely changed the whole economy of Las Vegas. She's had the perfume line. She's got married. She's done these inc- insane, amazing things. And yet those are the things we don't talk about. We talk about, oh, poor Brittany. And I can only imagine how demoralizing that must be for someone to read that and see that and think that that's what people are hearing about you over and over and over again. You've tackled Nico, Brittany, why vinyl matters. What's the difference between a good story and a great story? Ooh, that's a really good question. I mean, I always get told that conflict is what makes for a good story, but I personally think what makes for a good story is really not just assuming that what, if it's a biography, which is what I've written so far, it's not assuming that the facts you know are the truth to really go the extra mile to figure out what may actually have happened and to try to get as many viewpoints about something as possible. Being Brittany, Pieces of a Modern Icon is her book. Dr. Jennifer Otter Bickerdyke is the author. And Jennifer, Uh-oh. it's time for the Rocking Aid. Eight random questions answered with the Uh-oh. first thing that comes to your mind. There is no pressure. Oh, no, I'm scared. Oh, no. Who is a rock and roller you idolized growing up? Cindy Lauper. Why? Cindy Lauper is so badass, it's like not even funny. Like, she's super beautiful, but nobody ever talks about that. She just looks super cool. She had her own unique style. She wrote her own music. She wrote her own lyrics. She wasn't a fr- like like girls just want to have fun. Everybody thinks that's like oh it's just a fun party song. We that song is all about being a feminist and the the way that women want to stay out all night. Women want to do this and that, but we can't. The parallel lives that women have to lead compared to men. So she's just absolutely brilliant. Writing a song about masturbation. I mean, she's just incredible. I just love her. And I remember. I did. It was it was absolutely hilarious, Sean. I did an event with Peter Hook from Joy Division and New Order. It was hilarious because you weren't supposed to have any cameras, but someone did get a picture of this. So he and I each brought like some of our favorite records, and we were on stage like in conversation, talking about records and vinyl. And he's like the coolest person in the universe. He's like, this is my one of twenty five Joy Division records, and this is this, and this is that. And he's like, oh, what's your record, Jen? I'm like. She's so unusual, Cindy Lauper. And it was like I had farted in his face. Like he was so not cool. <laughs> and someone captured the look. It was like a look of just sheer disgust and horror. And he's like, oh, well, the slits did it better. And the da, da, da. And I'm like, Peter, I'm like, hooky, come on. I'm like, I was like eight years old when this record came out. I'm like, eight years old, living in Santa Cruz, California. The slits were not going to get there. I'm not going to have access to it. So Cindy Lauper opened up a whole nother world for me as a little kid, a world where I could be a nonconformist and still be beautiful, where I could have freedom and have fun and have funky friends and be myself and stay out late at night and have crazy ideas. 
and just be completely original. And that's why I love her to this day. Have you ever met her? I've never met her. Part of me really wants to meet her. Part of me is like, let me have a couple people that are still on the pedestal. What would you do if you did meet? I mean, would words come out or would it all be guttural? It probably would be guttural at this point. Because probably like you, I've met everybody. It's just... You know, it's cool. It's very, it's an honor and a privilege to be able to be friendly or friends with a lot of the people that I know. But with her, like she just, she informed the person I am to, she's one of like maybe like three or four people that directly informed the person, the good parts of the person I am today. And I don't know, like I'd interviewed Johnny Marr last year from the Smiths and that's another person. And it's like, I would have these kind of outer body. I'm not sure if you've had this. I'm sure you may have. When you're interviewing someone like that, you have like outer body experience when you're talking to them because you're talking to them, you're totally getting on with them like you and I are. And then you're just like, oh my Lord, it's Johnny Marr. Yeah, your head explodes. You're like, you changed my life. I would like go in between that during the interview. We'd be just like talking, talking. And I'd be like, oh my God, thank you, thank you. Th- oh my God, I can't deal with it, right? And he he just took it like a man. Like he was just like so cool with it. But like I wouldn't have been as cool as he was. First album you ever purchased. The Go-Go's talk show. Respect. Thank you, darling. One fact about you that would surprise people. Ooh. But 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 swing batter. Uh, I'm so sorry. That one, you got me on that one. What would surprise people about me? I'm very, very sensitive about things and I cry very easily at movies. What was the last film you cried at? I would say what's the last movie I cried at? I I mean I, I cry every single time I watch Pretty in Pink. Like wow. that's like because I feel like I'm Molly Ringwald. I'm just like, oh I cried when I watched um Crossroads of Britney Spears. I cry when I watched Spears Wedding. I cry like yeah I love it. Jennifer what's the best thing about your husband? Oh my God, what's not great about him? He is so good at his job he runs his own business in action sports and when i hear him talking on the like zooms and stuff like that about his business it's like this whole other world that i know nothing about and i'm like it's like he's speaking japanese or something like he's like i'm like whoa and like i'll look over his shoulder and he's all these spreadsheets it's like minority reports he has like all these excel sheets and stuff going i'm like whoa and yet, like, here's this dude that, like, drinks and, like, smokes pot and listens to bad reggae music, and he can still, he's just is so knowledgeable and has this huge-ass brain. It's just, like, the most insane thing. Favorite place to vacation? Santa Cruz, California. And head back home. Always home. If you could have your dream job, what is it? Uh, it would be, actually, I'm working, I'm trying to make it happen, Sean, you to help me. I want to run, like, a music and arts program in Santa Cruz so I can equip other people with like knowing how to run a podcast, knowing how to run a record label, master classes with people like you that have been working in the industry for a long time. I really want to do that in the in my hometown. I'm always here if you need me. I said, I said baby, I'm keeping you to that. I'm a man of my word. If you could have one moment to live over again, what is it? Uh, the day I got married. Why? It was the best day of my life because I had my, like I said, I I don't talk to my family, but but I had the family of friends that I've made. And I think to be that accepted and to have someone say that they want to spend the rest of their life with me. We got married in Santa Cruz. It was a total flash mob style wedding. If you look online, like look at like if you ever Google the surfer statue in Santa Cruz, literally, Sean, it's 
this like statue of a surfer, right? Like looking over one of the surf breaks in Santa Cruz. And we told everybody, we're like, be there at 1 p.m. on September 22nd. And I walked down like the cement with a boom box playing um, everywhere by Fleetwood Mac. <laughs> and then after our uh, readings that were dicey readings with quote fingers, someone did a Phil Collins reading. Someone did a Tupac reading and someone, someone did a Bob Marley reading. And then after we were man and wife, like, oh, you've been man and wife. Um, it takes two by uh, Rob Bass. It takes two to make a thing go right. We played that. Yes. It was the best. Elementary to high school. Which grade was the toughest for you? Elementary to high school. I would say sixth grade. I had a horrible time in sixth grade. Why? I can't imagine like you having to change schools all the time because I got bullied by a teacher in sixth grade. So I, my mom, yeah, a teacher. Yeah. So my mom put me in a different school and I started having really bad, having like nervous throwing up and diarrhea at sixth grade. I was really ill. So I stayed home all the time. And this is so weird. I started getting really into Beatrix Potter, which is way too young. But like I started reading biographies about Beatrix. I never have said this or thought about this actually until now. I started like reading biographies about Beatrix Potter and like watching documentaries about Beatrix Potter. And it was so weird because like that's something like a little, little, little kid would do, but I was doing that in like sixth grade. So this idea of kind of like being a writer, I'd already kind of gotten into that because I remember in elementary, elementary school, like first grade reading illustrated Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen. And then to comfort myself, I got into this Beatrix Potter thing. If you're enjoying these conversations, please check out another Beyond the Mic episode to find more actors, artists, and people you need to know. We'd also appreciate a like and subscribe on the Good Pods app. Being Brittany, Pieces of a Modern Icon is a book. Author Dr. Jennifer Otter Bickerdyke joins us for the back half Beyond the Mic Jennifer, your life was changed by the death of your friend Hunter. Tell us about your life before you met him. Before, I mean, I knew Hunter when I was in high school. And high school, I mean, I don't know any anyone that says they loved high school. I don't trust them. And they're like ejected from my life instantaneously because how can you actually love high school? You know what I mean? Reunions suck. I mean, we lost contact with you. No, you didn't lose contact with me. I just didn't want to go. Yeah. You never had me, friend. You never had me, bruv. No, 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 no. I did go to my, so I was going to say, so like Hunter to me, I had this group of friends. They were two years younger than me. And I was actually closer with them than I was with a lot of people in my own grade. And if you remember in high school, like two years younger was like a lot younger when you're that age. So Hunter was in this kind of crew of kids. It was two years younger than me. They were all way better. It's all, it's all boys. They were all like way better looking than the boys in my grade. They were just more fun. Like I just got on with them better. And this, and I have this whole like Molly Ringwald thing I'm talking about. Like I went to a different high school than the kids from my junior high school. So I like got accepted this more kind of elite high school. It was definitely a different kind of earner like the parents were definitely a higher earning bracket much higher than my parents so I remember when I first started going there I didn't even know houses like this existed in my town Sean like mansions and places that it had more than two bedrooms like these were like huge huge houses on like large places of people had swimming pools I'm like what is this place where have I gotten and so Hunter was in that crew of kids and he was just down to earth so nice like I have tons of memories of just like going, I would say the, the fun memories I have in high school, all, Hunter's always there. Like 
going to parties, having like those earnest talks you have as a kid. You know what I mean? You're fighting about the cure versus the Smiths, you know, really important stuff like that. And the Smiths win. Of course. This is why you and I get on so well. What's your favorite memory of Hunter McPherson after high school? I would say definitely seeing him like at Cal because we both went to UC Berkeley. I, I transferred from UC Davis to UC Berkeley. And seeing him there, I didn't know he was going there, but seeing him there was very like, oh my God, you're here too. Like that was really, really fun. And seeing the, again, it sounds so dumb now, but like in two years, someone can change so much. Seeing someone like the man they're becoming, I know that sounds really, really silly, but like when you're a junior in college, you feel like, ooh, I'm getting to be, you know, yeah, Miss Big Tits. And especially at that time, I had my first job in the music business, first like paid job in the music business. I was starting to feel I was kind of making my way in the world. It was just nice. It was nice to see him. And I know that these all sound like really kind of silly, stupid little things. But I always see with Hunter, with Hunter, it's Hunter the person and it's what Hunter could have become that I feel like is so snatched away because there's so few people that you encounter in life that are so positive and so just filled with good energy. Like every time you'd see him, you'd always just leave smiling. You'd never leave any interaction you had with Hunter. You wouldn't forget it. Like you'd walk away just smiling for like the next couple hours or the rest of the day. You'd be like, oh, so just you're, you're happy. And yeah, and I think there's so few people like that. You seem to walk on air. Yeah. Tell us what happened to Hunter and how did he change you as a person? Hunter was, and I think a lot of people have friends like this. Like it's someone that you knew when you were growing up and it was someone that you were, you were close friends with, but it isn't like necessarily the friend that is your best, 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 best friend. You talk to every single day, but it's that friend that you're always, oh, I'll catch up with them later. Like, it's like one of those, you know what I mean? Like I'd see him or we're out, oh my God, we'll totally catch up. And then you don't. And it's like one of those. And especially it's hard to imagine now, like without internet, without social media, it's just social media. You can just be like, but I'm thinking about you. Oh, hey, whatever. But like before social media, you honestly would want to catch up with someone, but you just you, it wasn't like you're trying to be malicious or anything. It just, you just wouldn't like, that's how life worked. And he was always someone that I'm like, I want to go see him. I want to do something. I want to do something. My job at the time I was head of marketing at Interscope Geffen A&M records. And to be honest, Sean, I was quite, when I look back on it now, I think I probably had like a drinking problem. I just was not very fulfilled with my job. I had all these issues. I probably, was I wasn't dealing with like baggage from with dealing with my family. I'd had a really, really bad breakup with a boyfriend, which I think when you have that of a you have that much trauma with a family, I think having a really bad breakup on it on top of it is like, okay, I've been rejected by my family. I've been rejected by this person that I was thought loved me. I was supposed to be getting married to. I just was not in a good place. And then Hunter lived about probably about five blocks away from where I lived in San Francisco at the time. This in when I was at the time of um, when he passed away. And what happened is he was walking home with the girl he was about to ask to marry him with his longtime girlfriend. He was walking home with her, and some guy came up to him and said, "Give me all your money." And Hunter said no, and the guy just shot him on the sidewalk in San Francisco. And I found out because the next day I was driving in San Francisco and someone called me on the phone and said, did you hear what happened to Hunter McPherson? And I said, no, what? And I just, just 
gone and gotten Botox for the first time. And I'll never forget this because I'm like, I'm like, oh God, what has Hunter done now? When it all just went down, how are you feeling? I was driving when they said this and I literally had to pull over the car. When they said, do you hear about Hunter McPherson? I'm like, what? And I'm like, I, I didn't think it was going to be anything bad. I thought it was going to be like, he went and got married in Vegas or something like ridiculous, you know? But they said what, that he, what had happened, I just pulled over and like, it was just in shock. I didn't believe it. And then I went home that night and it was on the news and I just was like, I don't think I cried, Sean, probably the first like three days. I was just numb, completely and totally numb. And I'm like, I kept trying to find more information about it. I couldn't believe it was real. Now I know it's real because it's been so long now. It's been over 20 years now. I don't know if this is how it was your sister when she passed away is a little bit different, but it was so sudden and it was like, I kept meaning to go see him. I kept meaning to like, to hang out with him. I never told him what that he made me feel that good. I never told him how much his friendship meant. And like, I'll always regret that the rest of my life. But I think the, the hardest, besides actually losing Hunter, I think going to his funeral was very, very difficult because I, I'd not seen all these people in a very long time. And I didn't want to, and now I wouldn't care. Like at age 50, I wouldn't care. I just, I, I'm here and paying my respects. Like that's how it is. But when you're in your twenties, you're a little bit more like, Ooh, you know what I mean? So at the time, I just am like, oh, I hope no one thinks it's weird. Like everyone, like anyone's going to be thinking about me. You know what I mean? I'm like, oh, no one thinks it's weird. I'm here. But I just remember going and like looking around and just seeing all these kids I grew up with and seeing all the same boys that I'd hung out with and been friends with, like carrying Hunter's coffin and knowing co- Hunter was inside. It was just unbelievable and just sobbing and sobbing and sobbing and just unbelievable. And that, that changed my life. Like that whole experience changed my life more than anything that's ever happened to me. So you left the music industry, sold everything, left the country. Why? Because of, of Hunter, because I was not happy. I didn't feel fulfilled. I thought Hunter will never, one of the things Hunter always said, two things he said is, is is he said, if you're going to go after Moby Dick bring the tartar sauce. And the idea of that is if you're going to go after something like go as big as you can and then assume you're going to get it. And the other thing he always used to say is true is true. And I'm like, I Hunter will never be able to do these crazy things and I can. So like try to live as fearlessly as possible. So I, that's still now almost every day I feel, especially I think now Sean, I'm older I want to make choices. I want to make changes. It's scarier and scarier as you get older to do that. But I think Hunter's doesn't have that opportunity. And I have to always stay true to what he taught me to live for him. So yeah, that's, that's why I did it. Jennifer, have you finally coped with this loss? Are you still hiding and hurting? That's a really good question. I think even a couple years ago, I was talking to someone and I started like crying about it and, I was really upset. They're like, you've got to like forgive yourself for not saying goodbye to Hunter. I I don't know if I'll ever forgive myself to be, even when I talk to his parents, I don't like still talk to them a lot about him. And even just talking right now, like I'm getting teary. I don't know if I'll ever forgive myself for not telling him how I felt, but I try to honor him every single day. Even just like talking about him right now is part of that. It's time for one big question with Dr. Jennifer Otter Bickerdike beyond the mic. 
What is good and bad with the music industry today? Is this going to be for another whole podcast? Because this is a long-ass question, Charles. Stop it. Uh, what's good about the music industry? I think what's great is that you can, if you're someone like me that is a massive nerd fan, I can go on and, like, for example, I interviewed Dave Navarro from Jane's Addiction for my book on Nico. Humble brag. I can go on and be like, hey, Dave, loving that. Cause he's, he's doing this dual diagnosis, like art project now. And you can be like, oh my God, Dave, I love it. And you can get like a little, Dave liked your comment. And you can be like, wee. I mean, Dave's, Dave's probably this like, 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 not paying attention to anything, but I'm, wee. It makes you feel, oh my God, I'm, a, I'm part of, I'm connected. So I do, I really like that part of it, you know? That's probably the only thing I like that's going on in the music industry right now. So what's bad? The world. <laughs> if you could be the head of your own record label, let's just call it Hunter Records, what would you do differently? Oh, I'm already working on that. I want there to be physical product, first of all. Physical product is, I mean, the thing is, I'm a huge hypocrite because I have, I, like, I think there's so many challenges and issues and problems with streaming, and yet I listen to, I use streaming services constantly. The convenience, convenience always wins out over all morals and ethos. That's the big problem. How do we make streaming so that artists are actually making some money from it? It's not good economical sense to be an artist these days. And I think one big issue is it's a plus and a huge minus. Anyone can be an artist. Anybody can go just get the software and, you know, I have voice memos. I can be a on my voice memo and suddenly I put on SoundCloud and be like, we have a song, you know what I mean? So there's just so much, but there's also with so much, there's not that much quality control. I think in a lot of ways, Jennifer, I don't consider myself an interviewer, but an archivist of stories. And now your story is archived. Oh, I like that. Cindy Lauper opened her eyes to music. She cries while watching movies. Her book is being Brittany pieces of a modern icon. We think, Author Dr. Jennifer Otter Bickerdyke, our friend, for taking the time to talk with us today. You're an absolute doll and a legend, and I adore you to bits. And that, my friends, is Beyond the Mic. Beyond the Mic.